Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Glimmers of Hope, Prophetic Voices and Political Violence. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June the 16th, 2013. I recently watched a PBS interview with the Cuban dissident Ioani Sanchez, the most famous living Cuban not named Castro. Her blog, Generation Y, is censored in Cuba, but it's still smuggled out by friends via email. It's been translated into 17 languages, read by millions, and earned Sanchez numerous international awards. Whatever progress Cuba has made, Sanchez is adamant. She says, I can categorically say that nothing has advanced in terms of citizen rights or civil rights. Sanchez calls to mind other truth-tellers around the world who've spoken truth to power. The Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe, who recently died, Myanmar's Nobel laureate Aung San Suu Kyi, the Chinese artist Ai Weiwei, and the hundreds of Russian journalists like Anya Politkovskaya, who was recently murdered. Like them, Sanchez has paid a price for her bravery. She writes, being watched, being stopped by state security, knowing that anywhere I go there could be someone informing, filming, and photographing what I do, and losing many friends, friends who are afraid to come close to my house or to me. Also, the arbitrary detentions, the arrests, the insults, the threats, the not being able to leave my country for five years. In this week's two Old Testament readings, Brave prophets confront the petty whims and despicable acts of powerful kings. Remarkably, the conclusions of both stories confound our expectations about political power. It's enough to give us a glimmer of hope for our own day. The story of Elijah immerses us in the real politic of Israel's ancient kings. The sacred narrative of salvation history in 1st and 2nd Kings makes for strangely secular reading. Elijah is a welcome surprise. He was a lonely prophet, alternately manic and reclusive, who faced down the craven King Ahab and his domineering wife, Jezebel. 1st and 2nd Kings summarize the reigns of 40 kings and one queen. It begins with the death of King David and ends 400 years later with Israel's exile to Babylon. Only two kings receive unqualified approval by the narrator. Otherwise, with dreary regularity, we read about coups, assassinations, civil wars, marital alliances to consolidate power and idolatry. Over 30 times the narrator laments how the kings, quote, did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
instead of celebrating political power, this sacred history of secular politics is uniformly negative. How should we read these ancient texts about a territorial god who slaughters his pagan enemies? Can we draw parallels to our own pathologies of political power today? Is it possible to connect the politics of man with the politics of God, whether in ancient Israel or in modern America, Zimbabwe, or Afghanistan? In his book, The Kings and Their Gods, the Jesuit priest and peace activist Daniel Berrigan interprets First and Second Kings as self-serving imperial records that portray Israel's kings as they saw themselves and wanted others to see them. God favors my regime and punishes my enemies. No war crime is too despicable as a means to the delusional ends of these kings. There is one political end in First and Second Kings, says Berrigan. Outside the empire, there is no salvation. According to Berrigan, there are many pathological means to this one end. Unrestrained imperial ego, political retaliation with impunity, military might, revisionist history, manipulation of memory and time, grandiose building projects, economic exploitation, virulent nationalism, and, sanctioning it all with divine approval, legitimation by religious psychophants. A few dissenting voices object to imperial power, but they are silenced as unpatriotic and seditious. Elijah is just such an exception. He arrives on the scene in 1 Kings 17. King Ahab despised Elijah as the troubler of Israel, and for good reason. Elijah had construed Israel's drought as divine punishment for Ahab's idolatry. After Elijah publicly humiliated Ahab on Mount Carmel, Jezebel boasted that she would assassinate him just as she had slaughtered many other prophets. That was no idle threat. And so Elijah fled for his life and confessed, Lord, I've had enough. But with a gentle whisper that spoke louder than a violent earthquake, a powerful wind, and a raging fire, God assured Elijah that he was not alone in his prophetic stand against political corruption. God said, I reserve 7,000 in Israel all those whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and all whose mouths have not kissed him. In this week's lectionary, Jezebel frames helpless Naboth with false testimony. She then convicts him as an enemy of the state, stones him to death, and annexes his vineyard. Get up and take possession she tells King Ahab, and that's just what he did. But soon afterwards, we read, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. And remarkably, after hearing God's judgment, we read that Ahab humbled himself 
before the Lord. In the second Old Testament reading, like Ahab, King David took what he wanted. He murdered Uriah and took his wife Bathsheba. And so we read, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan rebuked the king with a parable in its famous conclusion, Thou art the man. And once again, like Ahab, in contrary to our expectations, the powerful king accepted the rebuke. David writes, I have sinned against the Lord. When we connect these ancient texts in our contemporary context, first and second kings are like mirrors in which we see our own reflection today. Daniel Berrigan asks, do our leaders differ in any large degree from the rulers of old? They are hardly different at all. And when we silence or ignore the prophetic critique of contemporary politics today, we live under divine judgment just as much as Ahab, Jezebel, and David did under the judgments of Elijah and Nathan. And so, on the final page of his book, Daniel Berrigan challenges us, and I quote, One must urge to his own soul first a firm rebutting midrash. Bring Christ to bear. Read the gospel closely, obediently. Welcome no enticements, no other claim on conscience. Mourn the preachers and priests whose silence and collusion signal plain revolt against the gospel. Enter the maelstrom, the wilderness. Flee the claim that would possess your soul. Earn the blessing. Pay up. Blessed and lonely and powerless and intent on the master. And, if it must be, despised, scorned locked up. Blessed are the makers of peace. For books this week, I review a brand new biography. It's called The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. The author is Jean Theo Harris, Boston Beacon Press, 2013, 304 pages. <laughs> this new biography of Rosa Parks coincides with the 100th anniversary of her birth on February the 4th, 1913. Remarkably, it's the first comprehensive and critical biography of one of the most important women in American history. Rosa Parks has many awards and included a Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award given by the executive branch of government, and the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest honor bestowed by the legislative branch. When she died in 2005 at the age of 92, Parks became the first woman, the second black, and only the third private citizen to lie in honor in the Capitol Rotunda. Most people remember Rosa Parks for her iconic act 
<clears throat> on December 1st, 1955, in Montgomery, Alabama. After working all day as a seamstress at a department store, at about 6 p.m., Parks boarded a bus to go home. She paid her fare and sat down in the first row of seats that were reserved for blacks. When the front of the bus reserved for white people filled up, the bus driver moved the colored sign behind Parks, then told her and three other blacks to move to the back to accommodate the white passengers. Her three seatmates moved. Rosa Parks did not move. When that white bus driver stepped back toward us, she later recalled, when he waved his hand and ordered us up and out of our seats, I felt a determination cover my body like a quilt on a winter night. When he saw me still sitting, he asked if I was going to stand up, and I said, no, I'm not. And he said, well, if you don't stand up, I'm going to have to call the police and have you arrested. And I said, you may do that. The bus driver did call the police, who arrested Parks for violating Montgomery's segregation laws. She was also fired from her job. About 24 hours later, a friend bailed her out of jail. Her calculated act of civil disobedience jump-started the Montgomery bus boycott three days later on December the 4th. The nonviolent protest lasted 381 days until the Supreme Court ruled in Browder v. Gale, 1956, that bus segregation was illegal. Jean Theo Harris's new biography dispels two common myths about Rosa Parks. First, she was no meek or accidental heroine. In fact, Parks had been an active leader in the civil rights movement since 1943, when she joined the NAACP. That was at a time when such work was dangerous, demoralizing, and difficult. She said, People always say that I didn't give up my seat because I was tired, but that isn't true. I was not tired physically, oh no more tired than I usually was at the end of a working day. Nor was I old, although some people have an image of me as being old then. I was 42. No, the only tired I was, was tired of giving in. And secondly, her refusal to give up her seat was not the random act of a single day. Earlier that summer, for example, Parks had attended a school in Tennessee for civil rights training. Rather, Theo, Theo Harris shows how Parks dedicated 60 years of her life to political activism in the cause of social justice. In Parks' own words, I had almost a life history of being rebellious against being mistreated because of my color. Her bravery came at a cost. Throughout her life, she received death threats and hate mail. For a decade after the Montgomery bus boycott, until she was hired by John Conyers after she moved to Detroit, she was herself unemployable and suffered severe economic hardship. Slander was a constant experience. 
Theo Harris clearly wants to find a historically revised Rosa Parks, one that gives honor to whom honor is due, rather than one in which American democracy celebrates itself for its resilience and redemptive power that has moved us to a post-racial society. Her demythologized Rosa Parks burns all the brighter as the genuine mother of the civil rights movement. An excellent biography that I highly recommend, The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. For movies this week, I re re review a film called The House I Live In, 2012. This is a confusing movie about a complex subject, but it's still worth watching. Drugs are bad enough, as one bereaved mother says in this docu documentary film, drugs are a monster. But the impression given by writer and director Eugene Jarecki is that no matter how bad drugs are, the war on drugs is worse. I think that's a tough sell. The movie is right, though. There are horrible problems associated with the war on drugs started by President Nixon in 1971. Forty-five million people have been arrested, many of them nonviolent offenders. Mandatory minimum sentences restrict judicial discretion. Ridiculous laws punish users of crack far more harshly than users of powder cocaine. Confiscation of property by police turns out to be a tantalizing treasure trove. And God help the politician who appears soft on crime. The net effect of all these things has been to decimate our urban black families, whose people are far more likely to suffer the consequences of the war on drugs. For a scholarly treatment of the same subject, See the book by Michelle Alexander. It's called The New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness. It's reviewed on our website. Michelle Alexander is one of the many experts interviewed in this film. Her book argues that our penal system is not broken. It's doing just what it was created to do, to control black people. The name of the film, The House I Live In. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted one of our Celtic prayers. It's called, very simply, Blessing. Be each saint in heaven, each sainted woman in heaven, each angel in heaven, stretching their arms for you smoothing the way for you. When you go thither, over the river hard to see, or when you go thither home, over the river hard to see. You can find this prayer, Blessing, on our Journey with Jesus website, where several weeks ago we uploaded 25 Celtic prayers. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June the 16th, 2013.
I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.